Everyone ready? Conversation number 37. The universe, Master once commented, is teeming with life. Even what people think of as barren planets are manifestations of consciousness and therefore are not really dead. God's consciousness is at the heart of every atom, ever seeking to express itself outwardly. All life gradually evolves toward outward expression. Materialistic science believes that life appears only by accident, out of a mere combination of chemicals. Spiritual science, however, discovered long ago that at the heart of everything dwells the infinite consciousness. Well, this is a continuation when Master was talking about uh, space travel and other things. We took a break in it, but the book doesn't take a break. So we're, we're sort of in this... Um, we're in a section here which is very interesting where Master basically answers a lot of questions that people often ask. Is there life on other planets and things like that? And uh, you have the Master's definitive response to it. It may be satisfying to some people and not to others, but for me at least, I've always enjoyed having being able to say, well, Master says it's true, so it must be true. Or Swamiji said it was true, it must be true, when we ourselves have no way of evaluating it. That concept that Master puts there, and I've read this many times, and I'm, it's, uh, you know, a lot of ideas, you kind of have a vague idea of what they really mean, but when you actually try to get in there, it's a little bit hard to understand. And I've been, and, and there's, there, there are certain um, recurring ones that every time, when Swami was living, every time I would hear him say it, and I would see it coming, I would try one more time to actually understand it. I did that with, with the concept of time for many, many years, for a long time. <laughs> and I could never really just get my mind around what he was saying until I have a little bit better understanding. But this fact that there is no place in the universe that no matter how barren it may appear is actually dead because everything in the universe vibrates equally with the power of spirit because it can't be made out of anything else. And so part of what I was trying to put together in my mind is um, and he, he indicates it there. He says everything in the universe gradually evolves toward outward expression. And you know exactly what are we talking about if we're talking about plants evolving into animals, animals evolving into humans, in each of what each of those progressive stages would allow is a more and more sophisticated expression of consciousness. And that would make us think that each of those is a greater manifestation of consciousness. But it's not a greater manifestation, it's merely a greater expression of it. And Swami says in another place that, how did he put it? Let's see. What, the, what a brain allows and what a more complicated brain allows is a more complex outward expression of consciousness. But it doesn't necessarily, I mean, even in principle, all consciousness is all present at all times. And that we are not fundamentally different, we are just able to express it in a more... Uh, 
more complicated. I mean, I can't think of a different word. When you think about a baby, I was remembering my friend uh, uh, told me that he, he remembers um, in some part of himself being a newborn baby. And what he remembers is his mother handing him to his father, then his father handing him back to his mother, and then his mother handing him to his father. And he, as a baby, realized they didn't have any idea how to take care of him, and that's why they were passing him back and forth. <laughs> and it made him very nervous. <laughs> but it, it, it's like you think a baby um, isn't there in some way, but the soul, the baby was a full, you know, uh, accomplished adult, could have been a genius before it was a baby again. But then all of a sudden it's a baby, but nothing has happened to its consciousness. What's happened is its ability to express has been interrupted because the physical, the vehicle for expressing is now undeveloped. But Master writes in uh, Autobiography of a Yogi about his memories of being in the crib and, you know, his, his frustration at not being able to express all the consciousness that he had within him and having to sort out language and all of the incredible things that you have to sort out when you're a child. But w- we get confused in ourselves. Okay, we can't help but think of it. We often talk about a child, a little soul, we'll say, as if somehow because the body is small, the soul got littler. But somehow that relates to this thought that if there's, if there's conscious, if there's the vibration of spirit anywhere, it's the full presence of spirit, whether or not it can express. And I don't know why all life gradually evolves toward outward expression. Presumably it's because we all have to become self-aware and self-realized that that is the only plot that's going on. Every atom is dowered with individuality. It's not an individual soul, is it? I mean, I've never been able to actually finish any of these thoughts because I just reach a point where I'm just wildly guessing. It's not as bad as the last verses of Patanjali, but we're getting close, you know, (laughs) where we're just beyond our experience. But it's very interesting. So I tried once again on this one with um, that nothing is really dead because it's all an aspect of consciousness. Because if we can see with uh, spiritual eyes, you look everywhere and you see that vibrating living pulse. Because what would it be made out of except that power of spirit? It's very interesting, isn't it? So Master just looks at it and it all looks different to him. All right. And then he says, you know, material scientists can't really determine how consciousness ever, you know, where the dividing line is. But Master says there is no dividing line. It all just starts. Swami often talks about they'll never be able, you'll never be able to create an inanimate. You'll never be able to turn an inanimate object into an animate one. Now they've started with all the in vitro fertilization and that sort of thing. They've started um, creating the physical vehicle, you know, more deliberately. But nonetheless, it never activates, and they they can't they can't activate it. They can't guarantee that the mere uniting of a sperm and ovum is going to create a life. There's an intangible reality to that 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 they can't quantify. They can figure out all the different methods. As Swami put it, uh, uh, the, the, the male and the female create the vehicle for the soul to express its destiny. 
but they do not create either the soul or the destiny. That pre-exists, but you create the physical vehicle for it. So now people are manipulating how we create that physical vehicle, but they still can't guarantee it. Because there's no way to guarantee it. It's, it's a, it's a con- self-aware conscious force that makes its own decisions that won't, will not be commandeered. Interesting, isn't it? Yes. Oh, use the microphone. Uh-huh. I was thinking that just considering this reading and the other readings where we where Master has said these that it's all conscious and it's always trying to evolve into right. a greater and greater expression of itself really helps us break out of limited thinking and limited definitions of things and kind of just logical maya based right understandings because if you just start considering the idea that you know Pluto is teeming with life because it's consciousness trying you know just waiting its turn to express itself and that the farthest galaxy and the farthest star and the smallest thing at the same time um, I find it just really helps me expand my understanding and clarify my understanding of what's really going on what it's and master's constant use of the movie analogy and a lot of his talks he just talks about a movie all the time and there's one fascinating conversation where he talks about um man never invents anything man has never created anything he He only rearranges things well and he notices that word discover is a much more accurate word than invent because you do discover, it's just sitting there. And you discover at the right timing. Uh, one of the readings that's coming up, we probably won't get to it tonight, is about yugas, the yugas. And Swamiji often comments about, you know, the, the, there was a certain point in which they realized the world was round, except he, he points out that people were sailing ships all the time, and, and the way the ship comes over the curvature of the earth, why didn't anybody put that together until a certain point? Of awareness, in other words, it was all staring them right in the face. And anyone who who was self-realized at any point in any yuga always had exactly the same full experience. But what what uh, Master writes a lot about this in Whispers, that poem that Swami often quotes, that Master just created in the moment is artistic expression under the control of your will. Yes. And I believe it was the one where he said, when I was blind, I I didn't see a door anywhere, but now that I can see, I see doorways everywhere. And so you realize that if the eyes are open to spirit, everywhere you look, you see the spirit. You see God smiling at you in every single aspect of creation. And it's not a poetic fancy. It's, it's, It's like I've often made the comment between, with Swamiji, a lot of times I would think, that he was affirming a good attitude when in fact it was simply the way he perceived reality. There was no act of will in there. It was just when he looked. So when we um, use our creative imagination to imagine that the, the rustle of the wind is really the voice of God speaking to us, that's quite different than actually hearing the rustle of the wind and actually hearing or looking at the leaf and seeing the actual life, pulsing life force of the infinite behind it. And I think that's part of what Master's trying to say to us. There's no place that you can look, no matter 
whether it has outward expression or not. Here's another just interesting implication of all life is moving toward outward expression. In his book, Art as a Hidden Message, or what does he call it now? Does he, does he, is it still its name? Um, uh, somewhere in there, there's the phrase, I believe, it's a path, it's partly the path of self-realization, artistic Maybe it's just that that's how I've always thought about it. The first time I read that book and really um, comprehended what he was saying, it's like he almost explicitly says and virtually says that on your way to becoming a God-realized master, you must first become a creative artist. But that's... He doesn't quite say it like that, but he almost says it like that. It may be... Pardon me? Pardon me? To be spiritual, you have to be creative because you have to get into that realm. But it's also, it's like, he he also talks about self-expression, artistic and creative self-expression is one of the ways that we clarify and understand who we are. And clarify and understanding who we are is a necessary process in order um, to be able to shed the delusion because otherwise we don't, we're a mystery to ourselves. I mean, there's many reasons for it. But also it's just this uh, evolving impulse to greater and greater self-expression. It's interesting because see, one of the big shifts in the Dwapara Kali, from Kali to Dwapara, from the point of view of how do you overcome the ego. And this is what Swamiji has made such a point of in Sadhu Beware and in other places. You know, do you do transcend the ego merely by suppressing it, or do you transcend the ego by um, expanding it to infinity but ceasing to identify with it, however you want to call it? You know, there are great uh, saints who don't do much in the world, but that doesn't mean that they're not creatively expressing themselves. In, in the, um, the book that's published about Lahiri Mahashaya's life, which it's, it's, it's hard for me to reference it because I find that book so confusing. It's based on Lahiri's diaries, which this man has translated from whichever language Lahiri wrote them in into English. But when you read it, you can't tell what's translated and what's not translated and what's interpreted. And so it's, it's an annoying book. But nonetheless, you get this thread, which was how, um, how original and creative Lahiri's meditations were because he was always pushing and experimenting and making notes on his experiments. My, uh, my, my uh, conclusion from that book was several fold. One is, um, well, it also goes back to the whole Patanjali cycle where we tend to think that the word samadhi is the end of the story, but it seems to be the beginning of a whole other chapter. And so Lahiri Mahashaya was essentially charting that whole chapter, which is once you begin to meditate on that level, we all think it's done, but it's not done at all. And there's a few interesting um, letters, pieces of letters between Master and Rajasi, in which Master is encouraging Rajasi to meditate on this and meditate on that and experiment with this and experiment with that. And it's just like the art of it never stops. 
And so even if Lahiri is not writing any books or founding any organizations or doing anything, he's still seemingly deeply engaged in creative self-expression in this unique relationship with God. And so it, it never ends well because look at creation. If you're going to unify yourself with that level of spirit, it just goes on and on and on. I mean, just in the last couple of days, just in the natural world, we had that torrential rainstorm and then we had the incredible skies and then suddenly it's chilly all of a sudden. It's just endless shifting. Like who and what is expressing itself? Satchitananda, the, the devas in charge of weather. Um, we, the, the, uh, Chris wants the microphone. The devas in charge of El Nino, who we hope is really, really active. Yeah. Yes, Chris. I'm reminded of a couple of times where Swami talked about different lines of development. Different uh-huh. lines of development. Right. Um, he talked about it at least once in the context of... Um, whole planets and stars and galaxies themselves being conscious beings and those are yes. the actual bodies of conscious beings that we can't even begin to understand how they would be a conscious being right. but it's just a different line of development available to consciousness in the context of yes. our physical universe and there's an analog for that in the astral universe and so on Yeah. and um, uh, he also said the same thing about uh, certain kinds of astral creatures like angels, you know, they they're not leprechauns and fairies and all those other and things. And mermaids. We always have to say mermaids because <laughs> yeah. that's the one that causes me to... So it's another line uh-huh. of development of consciousness. And yeah. it would only make sense that there's probably an infinite number of lines of development there not be? for consciousness. And yeah. you know, we're, we're seeing one of them that makes sense in our particular corner of this particular material expression of, you know... Right. But uh, it's, it's probably mind-bogglingly infinite. Well, you have that charming story of Master's... Uh, cosmic experience in August of 1948 when he was with Divine Mother and Divine Mother took him all over the universe and Master was heard to say oh, so that's how you do it I mean, what could he have been perceiving? what could he have been talking about? oh, so that's how you do it just, it's, it's, it's um, mind expanding and humbling all of which are good things yeah. Okay. Any other comments or questions? All right. So, we'll move on from that one. Number 38. In Los Angeles, perhaps during the month of February 1951, there was a succession of unusually heavy rains. One day the master commented, well, this is better at least than worlds where it is always raining or where the sun never stops shining. Oh, Okay. <laughs> that just that there's not too much else to say that's just exactly what you said I love the way uh, I love how much Master knows about everything you know and just how easily and, and casually he refers to other realities it all suffering is based on too tight an identification with the specific experiences of this particular egoic expression. And all freedom is based on seeing this experience in proportion. It doesn't change it, you know, it doesn't change 
you know, what you have to do and so on. But when you see it in proportion, it's really quite different than when you see it out of proportion. And so just, the, just all of those comments are, are intriguing, but what they also do is just... Um, we, we, we have, just have to stop identifying with such a small reality. It's a very, it's a very endlessly difficult and confusing challenge, I find it. You can say it, but when something happens, either painful or pleasurable, that sucks you into it, it's just not so easy to, to talk yourself out of it. So you just have to, con- just this constant, constant. I remember on several occasions, and I, you know, sometimes I have to practice what I preach, when parents have come to me and uh, been very concerned about whether or not they're good parents to their children. And I've, I've made this little drawing just about how many lifetimes we've all had, you know, just putting one line after another, like a rainbow with a million little, little tiny hairlines and how many incarnations we've had and how in every incarnation we had parents and in every incarnation we lived with those parents for a little while but you know what how much does one set of parents actually define the whole soul and its destiny of course when you are those parents and you have that soul under your care it's not so easy to remember that but thinking just impersonally about oneself here i am in this particular year, in this particular body, at this particular time, and even things that may have lasted the whole lifetime, really, in the greater scheme of things, it's so tiny, but the delusion of the massive nature of it is so intense. I mean, so many times I've heard Swami just say, oh, you know, just, he's so casual about it. Well, it's happened, let's just go on. Well, we did that, you know. He he never would let us... Or, I would say never. He never would facilitate a let's talk about what happened kind of conversation among people when there were misunderstandings or anything like that. It's just like, just put it behind you. And from a psychological point of view, people would would protest against that. But the longer I've been on the spiritual path, the more I understand it. You know, just accept responsibility, don't hide from it, and then just forget it. Because that whole um, uh, continuous identification with it, where does it take us? That was that um, humorous statement that I quoted at Sunday service, be careful not to trip over something that's behind you. <laughs> I thought that was very, very well stated, because it really is so. Much of the time we're continually tripping over something that isn't there anymore, but we're still tripping over it. And and there's it's it's even more subtle than that because something in you is so convinced that you need to stay with it. I mean, it's not it cannot be dismissed with just a wave of the hand, because there's something in you that is so convinced that it's still happening. But of course, it's only still happening because you're convinced it's still happening. I, I mean, I have no answers to this. I just, and then everybody always says, oh, well, after a while, you know, time. And I think to myself, what happens over time? 
I mean, what, what happens over time except what, that we're just so dull-minded that we no longer remember? Like what really, hap- what really does happen over time? And why would it take time? I think Mas- uh, Swamiji talks about that maybe in one of the Sunday readings somewhere, that uh, realization takes time because we think it takes time. We're convinced that it takes time for things to happen. And so because we're convinced, it's true. And we have this thought in our mind that, you know, this is just troublesome now, but a year from now it won't bother you as much and all of that. But what, what is it that actually happens over time? In the eternal now, I think that That's where he says it? Yeah. We think it takes... Because we believe it takes time. Swamiji, when he crashed his car against the bus, which was a story he used to tell, when his tires, when he was going skiing and his tires were bald and he hit the tires and he, the car was totaled against a bus. And they just got out of the car and got on the bus. And were, he said, it's very, it's very convenient because the bus was going where they were going. <laughs> and, uh, and they were perfectly cheerful when they got on the bus. And people thought, why are you not upset? He said, well, in a week I'll feel fine. Why should I waste a week? I mean, you can think, in a lifetime I'll feel fine. Why would I waste a whole lifetime? But even Swamiji, with his, you know, the major trauma that he went through with his guru bhais turning on him so fiercely and never giving up, maybe that's one of the reasons it took him so long to get, why it was such a continuous issue, is because it was an active issue, it wasn't a passive one. But he, he worked on that a long time, a very, very, very long time, to actually really um, transcend it. I mean, and he himself made a distinction between affirming a good attitude and actually really having it. You know, you can affirm a good attitude and essentially live in it, but there's always a little bit of willpower involved, that you have to be vigilant. Like he would talk about the difference in a certain sense between like Master and Ramana Maharshi where Ramana Maharshi was uh, a great saint he wasn't a fully liberated master but he was a great, great soul he was a master he just wasn't fully liberated what the difference is, I don't know um, but he was very austere you know, he just was very austere he often didn't speak he, he lived on the uh, mountain there in India and it just was very austere And Master was so just natural and relaxed and engaged. And Swami said, well, Master was so uh, comfortable in his realization that there was no necessity for him to protect himself against anything. Whereas Ramana Maharshi, who also had an infinite state of consciousness, seemingly, still he had to protect himself a little bit. So there's a a slight distinction there that he, he still had that state of consciousness, but he had to ensure it. So to say that Swami had to use his willpower to have the right attitude is not exactly to say that he didn't have it, but at a certain point it became effortless, spontaneous. I'm I'm not making, I'm not, these are not declarations, these are interesting speculations. We can we can see. It seems to me we can see um, reflections of that in our own 
yes. life. Like exactly. uh, for a long time, maybe you, you struggle with your diet or something, then it just becomes completely natural for you. It's not a struggle anymore. Exactly. And, you know, on and on, you know, all kinds of things that right. we can see on the level that we're living on that can point us towards... As above, exactly. so below. Yeah. Yeah, and that's where the lessons all come. I mean, I, you know, uh, Swamiji's life, he had many tests and trials, and what, he, what his life was about was showing us grace under fire, which is a very helpful lesson. Grace under fire is a really important lesson. We think we, you know, people think that you can tell how great a master is is because the smooth, effortless, clear sailing that he has, and that proves that he was perfect. And, you know, fortunately, this movie, Awake, about Master, I feel has done a great service because it has dramatized some of what he struggled with. I I don't 100% approve of the movie, but that's just, you know, I'm a pretty picky artist in that sense. And I, I have some philosophical arguments with it, some tiny ones. However, it does show you that here's a great avatar and it was not smooth sailing by any means. And one of the greatest disservices, I think, that's been done by some who represent him is thinking in the name of showing his greatness, you have to smooth out all the, um, any difficulties. But what that does is that leaves us with no example. And what would be the point of a master incarnating to show us how effortlessly he can live it just makes you feel inadequate to the task. But when you see, I mean, the life of Jesus is the best of all possible examples of saying sometimes it don't, don't come out real well, you know, in the short term. <laughs> I mean, fortunate, it's a fortunate example. It's been uh, twisted so that actually if it don't come out right, that means that it's spiritual. I mean, it's just every, the human mind will make a mess of anything actually, just given the least opportunity because we're always moving toward outer expression and we just keep finding a way to do it. But it's important to realize um, the freedom looks different than we think it looks. You know, freedom is the ability to have grace under fire, not the ability never to be fired at. Yeah. Okay. So that's about raining all the time on some planets. Number 39. Okay, now this is very long, so I have to think about whether how much to read. Oh, no, it's not so long. It's about the gunas. All creation, he taught, and as the Bhagavad Gita states also, is a mixture of the three gunas, are basic qualities of consciousness. The lowest of them is tamoguna, the darkening quality. Next comes rajoguna, the activating quality. The highest of the three is sattva-guna, the spiritually clarifying or elevating quality. The universe everywhere manifests predominantly one or another of these qualities. Indeed, the Master told us that entire galaxies manifest primarily one or another guna. I must paraphrase here, for though I am quoting my recollection of his actual words, my recollection, I'm quoting, my recollection of the actual words is somewhat vague. Quote, there are entire galaxies where Tamas predominates. The inhabitants of the planets in those galaxies are for the most part brutish, 
and incapable of aspiring to spiritual heights. Fierce animals abound there and cannibalism. The inhabitants are constantly in a state of conflict and warfare. Lust and every animal pleasure are considered the best that life has to offer. Swamiji has commented about, he was reading somewhere that now that there's been, he was, it was about the Florida Everglades, I believe, and there's all this great effort to bring back the alligators. And so now that there were more alligators in the Everglades, there were more people being eaten by alligators. <laughs> Which, of course, when there were no alligators, there were no people being eaten by alligators. And um, he, he would see, uh, I mean, and there is a lot of uh, lamenting of this species is dying out and that species is dying out. And he, he said about the alligators, why would anyone want to bring back, you know, such a, a, a gross creature, essentially. And, and what Swami also moved into, now, now Swamiji, just, you all know this, but just so that it, it's said, you know, he was very conscious of the, the great web of life and the, uh, the karmic error of of trying to dominate rather than to cooperate with nature. But also much of what we think at our particular time as, as actually regressive is actually progressive. Because he says right here, he writes, you know, um, fierce animals abound there. So we, we have this kind of sentimental affection for all of God's creatures, but some animals are really quite fierce and, and ruthless and brutal in the way that they um, eat and kill. And we can admire them in a certain way and see that they offer something, but still when those species begin to die out, it's not necessarily a sign. Yes, there are things wrong, but that is not necessarily a sign that we're not doing the right thing. Because think about it. I know when uh, we were visiting in New Zealand and uh, that man came over from Australia, Travis. And uh, in Australia, there's a lot of poisonous snakes. And there's just a lot of things in the bush that are poisonous. And in New Zealand, I believe there's nothing that's poisonous. It's one of the unique features of that country. And so you can wander around uh, very freely in wild areas where in his country you have to be very conscious because you, you are in real danger a lot of the time. And it was such a different experience for him to not have to sort of have that antenna up. He, he was a man who went out into the uh, woods and into the uh, countryside a lot. Now, I'm not saying New Zealand is more advanced than Australia, although the Kiwis may insist that that's true, but that's just beside the point. But the point is that a natural landscape will also express his consciousness and what will be attracted there, you know, that threatens and how, how, how people live and eat, how creatures live and eat. You know, even though it is the natural order of things, whenever you, they do those nature films, you know, where the, the one, the lion eats the baby deer, it's, it's not pretty at all. And if that was your consciousness, I mean, if you were inside that animal and, and you had to eat by finding some weak, helpless creature and sucking its blood out, 
I mean, it, it, it's inherently, uh, it's really, yeah, it's inherently gross. I always, I mean, people who eat meat, we don't slaughter animals ourselves for the most part, and it's all just moved so far out of your knowing what you're actually eating, and everything is, has a different name other than pig, goat, or cow. You don't say that's what you're going to do. I, I was amused by a, a, a memoir I wrote of a, a famous French, uh, wrote, read, of a famous uh, French chef. I don't remember his name. And he was talking about the difference in France and America toward uh, barnyard animals and for food. And he was out with his, a friend of his and his daughter, uh, a, a man who was a friend of his and his, his own 10-year-old daughter, and... They were all chefs, and they were. They drove by some little farm area, and it said, "Ducks five dollars," and so they thought, "Well, we could have duck for dinner." So they stopped, and they and he picked out a couple of really plump ducks, and he said there was a woman there in Birkenstock selling the ducks, and the the, the lady said to the daughter, "Are the ducks for you?" The daughter thought about dinner, and said yes, so she brought the two ducks, and so. The chef just broke the neck of one of the ducks because he was buying them for dinner. And so he just, you know, quickly and in his way, he just broke the neck. I had been taught to do in France when he grew up on the farm. He broke the neck and tossed the dead duck into the trunk and was reaching for the other, at which point the woman in Birkenstocks just began to scream, you know, and grabbed the living duck and ordered him off her property and just became totally upset. And it was just... It took him a minute. Of course, maybe not that woman, but people all over America would go into his restaurant and order the duck. But they were horrified to see him break the neck of the duck. You know, it's just we're, we're all in between this. I, I just love that story. Somehow it, the clash of cultures and the different worlds that everyone lives in, and, you know, this like the Frenchman was like, what, what, what's the deal here? But of course he, he was learning about America. But if you are, I mean, what, what makes you progress from being one of those animals? You know, a friend of ours, uh, Adananda, was uh, in the army in Vietnam. And he, he was camping some, in some jungle site. And there were three men in a tent. And there was some question about where he would sleep. And he ended up sleeping in the middle. And the man on the end was pulled out by a tiger and killed. Yeah, it's not a joke. When we were in Rishikesh one year, um, and we were at uh, Vasishtha Guha Cave, and uh, up on, and several people wanted to camp out there, and our guide said, "No, you can't possibly camp here." And we were, you know, they, not I, who didn't recognize that our guide knew what he was talking about. We're just insisting, "Oh, we sure we can. We can do this." And he was absolutely not. There are tigers here. You can't just go sleep on the river bank. It's just, you just can't do it. But, but think about that. You can see, I mean, that's a planet that is gross enough that human life can be threatened because a tiger is hungry. And think about a world in which that doesn't happen. It's a much more refined and more harmonious and uh, more elevated state. So we are destroying the natural balance, but part of what is happening is that our, our, um, our, our ignorance is facilitating a change, a change on the planet. 
And the other change that's happening, I'm skipping ahead a little to the yuga section, but the other change that's happening is that indigenous cultures are all being eliminated and, and cultural characteristics are all being eliminated. You know, people dress the same and they mostly now start speaking English. They're exposed to the same things. And on one hand, you, you lament that you don't have all that charming um, folklore, but what's actually happening is it's becoming one culture, which is what happens in higher ages because the planet, and, and he puts that in the, the section about the yugas which is coming, we realize that we all live together in one village. So what looks like negative is also positive. You can't evaluate, once you get on the path of self-realization, you can't just run your same tapes. You have to stop and actually think, is this really, is this just my habit? Or is this really the self-realization principles here? And, uh, and you know, it's what we were, in the very early years of Ananda, I'll give you in just a moment, we... Um, when we had a lot of antagonism with our neighbors at Ananda Village and Swamiji sort of was in town and met one of the outspoken critics and being Swami being who he is he just sat down with him to ask him you know he was the guy was drinking coffee and Swami said can I join you and he just sat down and, and essentially they had a conversation about what the problem was and uh, it was part of the problem was that we just didn't fit into any box. And they all had their given values, their crowd, they all had the same point of view, and we just didn't fit in. We were sort of like them, but not at all like them, and we were sort of like this and not at all like that, because we're not, we're self-realizationists. And self-realization just cuts another line through through everything. And it, it takes real creative thinking to be able to hear that one and not just subconsciously respond from what used to be true. Yes. Excuse me. I can't remember if the Yuga's book said how people would act with animals. Do you have any comment about in the higher ages? Well, um, I'll, I'll, I'll quote the time tunnel where Swamiji takes the boys into a more harmonious age and they don't have to have screens on the windows because the insects and the people have it all worked out and the insects stay in their world and the people stay in their world and they don't have to um, they don't have to wall each other out because we just understand that we can all live happily here together we don't have to and, but then even things like you know little nasty flies and mosquitoes and stuff like that they're from those darker planets you know those are characteristics of darker planets these little irritating niggly bothersome things are characteristics of, of worlds where people are at war with each other. In a more harmonious world, you don't even have that. So it's, it's quite... Yeah. Like tigers and animals like that. I, I don't know. But you know, there's, there's other sides of it. Like the, the Native Americans had a whole entirely different way of relating to nature. And it was an enormous part of their sadhana was the natural world. It it was their spirituality. By the time the Europeans came to America and were encountering what what were called the Native Americans, whatever the right phrase is for it, they themselves were the remnant of a much greater people. In other words, they, they were the Kali Yuga remains 
of something that had flourished at a much higher age. So you can imagine at a much higher age when everything was in more harmonious balance that all that their particular, I would call it a bhav, their spiritual bhav of really relating to the natural world, but many of the things that sort of probably came down that they were still following were the way Purushottama describes it in in the Yuga's book where you start with natural attunement in, in intuitive, spontaneous harmony. And then as the yuga begins to descend, then you have rituals and mantras and prayers and ceremonies to maintain that. And you know, then you can see it gets more and more into form because it's no longer consciousness. And so the American Indians, when we first got here, still had a, a great, some tribes, some were more advanced than others in this respect, but they were still living in this great relationship with nature, but they remembered a completely different time, which is part of what I'm saying, even though Master said America got very bad karma for what we did to the American Indians, which we still haven't paid off yet, um, it was also, it was their time, because it, were, it was just, their culture was over, we're moving into this other one. Swami has commented that most um, most Americans can't draw as much spirituality out of nature as the American Indians could. We just can't do it because we're not uh, attuned to it enough. When when we started our farm and we had a coyote or whatever, we, I mean, I know we've had various things more recently, coyotes and chickens and things like that, and. You know, there all of a sudden you're, there's a coyote and he's going to eat your chickens and there's a deer who's going to eat all your vegetables and uh, you, you want to be able to conjure up that whole harmony with nature but it's a whole way of life and you can't just sort of drive over from Palo Alto and talk to the coyote. It's not, it's not exactly the same. You know, just just one small thing and then we'll take a break. There's a very good book but it's, it's so, um, it's so heartbreaking. I think it's called. Now I can't remember, but I think it might be called "The Journey of Crazy Horse." I think it's about Crazy Horse. It's a it's a book about the Lakotas. And uh, they talked about how when they finally had to accept, they had to go to the reservation, and they were going to put up teepees there. But they, they were no longer the buffalo. They didn't have the buffalo. And the white people were going to provide them with heavy canvas to make their teepees. And, and there was just this incredibly poignant description. The buffalo hide was very heavy. And so they put these uh, teepees on the snow plains through these huge winters and it would storm. But the, the hide... Uh, was it wouldn't move in the wind, but the 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 tarps blew and created continuous noise. And so the Indian was talking just about, you know, the uh, extraordinary uh, 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 terribleness of having to live in this in this constant noise inside that teepee. I mean, just something as simple as that, and how. The white people, well, here's, you know, you don't have to hunt it, you don't have to clear it, we'll just give it to you. 
But it was a wholly different reality for them. Because now they were cut off from the natural world by this constant noise all winter long. Just, uh, this world is not our home. That's the only conclusion you can possibly draw. Okay, let's take a break on that extremely cheerful note. So we have just gone through the gross, cannibalistic, fierce animal planet, which we're all glad not to be on anymore, aren't we? Okay. Um, Lust and every animal pleasure are considered the best that life has to offer. That's a very interesting phrase, actually, because the next one we come to is our galaxy, which is the very rajasic one, where, you know, uh, you have a planet that has a certain... uh, what it considers to be the apex of accomplishment as a group. So, again, there are galaxies where Rajaguna predominates. The planets in them are peopled by more more self-aware beings whose primary concern is with self-advancement, self-aggrandizedness, and self-importance. Our own Milky Way galaxy is such a system. (laughs) I... Uh, Kriyananda speaking, should interject here the personal supposition that this earth is situated, this earth situated as it is near the outskirts of our galaxy, may receive less of the spiritual power that Swami Sri Yukteswar says emanates from the galactic center. Thus, we on earth may be even more rajasic than the majority of those rajasic planets which are closer to the center. So, you know, Swamiji has often just used the phrase, you know, this is such a rajasic planet. Sometimes he said it to people who lament that they can't meditate all that well. He'll say, well, this is a very rajasic planet. <laughs> and when you really think about what is valued on this planet is rajas. The more you do, the more active you are, the more you advance yourself. And once again, you live within it. You don't even think about it. It's on this planet, lost in other animal pleasures... Um, well, to a certain extent they are, but not quite as 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 uh, totally without um, any mitigating factors. But what is really admired here is uh, accomplishment, personal accomplishment. In one of the conversations with some well-meaning people about our school, they suggested that it would inspire the second graders to have some of the local CEOs come in and talk to them. <laughs> when that was mentioned to me, I thought, why on earth would we want to do that? But, but you can just see how, you know, that, look, see what you can become? This is what, you know, this is the apex of this planet. Look, a self-made millionaire. You can be one too. And, whoa, yes, go on. So um, if we're a more, if we're basically a rajasic planet in a rajasic galaxy, does that mean even when we get more sattvic in Satya Yuga, it's only relatively so? And you mean if Earth becomes, well... Because no, in Satya Yuga, it's going to be different than it is now here. But is that just, just sort of higher or lower in, the, in a rajasic sort of way? And if you're often a... I don't know if we're always rajasic. If this whole galaxy is like doomed always to be rajasic, or it's raj- if it's in rajasic because of its location in relation to wherever the sources are coming from. Like what is the, the whole total... What is the final whole potential of Earth? You know, like at its apex, at its Satya Yuga apex, what does it look like? 
I have no idea. Well, the same souls are attached to the, the yugas are planet. No, the, the implication would be that in Satya Yuga it would no longer be such a rajasic galaxy, that the rajasic nature of the galaxy is a, a condition of where it is in relation to the grand central sun or, or who knows. Sentence: Our own Milky Way galaxy is such a system. Sounds like it's just a it does sound rajasic like it, system. It? Yeah, I think we'll have to wait for that time when Divine Mother takes us around the universe, and then she'll show us how it's done. Yes. Does this mean that if we can make it here, we can make it anywhere? <laughs> partly, partly, and but what it really also means is this was the exact appropriate karmic opportunity that we needed was to be born at uh, Dwapara Yuga rising, early Dwapara, and a Rajasic galaxy. And that the conditions of this were just exactly the conditions that we needed. And to be born in Silicon Valley, which is probably the most heated up, you know, intensely Rajasic. However, Silicon Valley is also very, uh, very, very, very refined, creative, expansive, I mean, this is the center of Dwapar Yuga, really, and the whole world is right here. So it's still got a lot of this, the self-aggrandizement, self-importance, but it has a lot of the others, too. I just, somebody, and it was maybe us, thought this was a good idea. <laughs> you know, we might be, in our, given our level of misunderstanding, we might be viewing Rajasic as... Bad or, well, no, it's or right here. Darkening or something. It's no, just no, it, it's not. It's yeah. not. It's, it, what's bad about it is this: whose primary concern is self-advancement, self-aggrandizement, and self-importance. Rajas is just energy, but but in a, a primarily rajasic, the the nature of rajas is to emphasize self, not trans, not self-transcendence. There's any um, um, implications? for us as devotees in how, we're, how we conduct ourselves, maybe how we, because we are, if it's a fact that we're living on a rajasic planet, maybe we can't, maybe it's not realistic for us, to, this is a crazy question. It is a crazy question. To try Tom, to don't be finish like it. super sattvic because don't we're finish living it. on a rajasic planet. Don't finish it. It's just, pass it back to Ekavir. <laughs> Is it? Can we use rajasic and energetic synonymously? Uh, energetic. Well, you can be you can be more sattvic in your energy. Rajasic is by the nature of rajas is restless and often circular or self-aggrandizing. But you have to have energy. But it's a quality. I mean, it's all energy. You have tamasic energy. You have rajasic energy. You have sattvic energy. So no, you can't use it. It's rajas and energy are not synonymous. It's a it's a kind of energy. Because when Rajasi was meditating, when a highly deeply powerful yogi is meditating, he's channeling more energy through him than anybody is channeling. But no, it's sattvic energy. It's not rajasic. So it's restless. energy that tends to turn toward self is what rajasic energy would be. But, but it's better to be rajasic than to be tamasic because when you're tamasic you don't even have any energy and it's all 
downward pulling physical energy and in a rajasic planet at least you have the energy to be selfish which is up from not having enough energy even to be selfish and then when you get to be selfish long enough you get to discover the happiness producing limitations of selfishness and uh, the limitations of happiness production of selfishness but you don't find that out until you have enough energy to become selfish or you're like us where we are shifting from rajas into sattvic and but this was the perfect karmic environment for us and yes tom to give your question a slight amid of respect no seriously to be a yogi is to is to realistically work with conditions as they are so for example master says it's a very rajasic planet eating eggs is a good idea you know and so when people would try to become fruitarians um swami would just say, it's just too rajasic a time you know, you can't you can't take such a sattvic diet in such a rajasic atmosphere it's it you don't have the uh, the support if you're if you're living out in nature and in total harmony and drawing your energy and clean air clean water you know no yeah, uh, electromagnetic fields you know no wifi signals going through your brain all the time you know you can just eat apples but here it's like you've got to uh, relate a little bit and also it, it's just the way we have to be here especially living here well we have to turn it we have to take all that rajasic energy but but we we need to not be rajasic but we need to work with what we've got here and recognize it's just what this what's going to be like for now and and it's a whole different thing yes okay pa- pass it all the way over well it's you can be god realized anywhere you could be god realized in the depths of kali yuga jesus was kali yuga declining it was about as bad as it could get but that didn't and have the two dramas the the drama of the yugas and the drama of the gunas well let's say the yugas is a purely physical phenomenon the gunas is a description of the ever uh, the ever interplay of energy and and all three exist it's just where on the spectrum when a master goes into tamasic energy he may lie down and rest a little bit you know when a tamasic person goes way into tamasic energy he may become stone drunk and pass out and that's the bottom of his spectrum but all three gunas there's always an interplay of all three gunas it just depends on what level of refinement because that in, until you transcend creation at all all of manifested creation is a balance of these three qualities it has to be things are at rest inert things are active and things are are truly calm and that's that's what we're always always working within in ourselves to balance yes yeah perhaps to uh just as a way to illustrate what our free will is all about our rajasic energy is sometimes described as tama rajasic or sattva Rajasic, right. depending on which way we point it. Which way we run the energy, because you can use a lot of energy and still be very darkening. You can take the energy to a very darkening place, or you can take all that energy to an uplifting place. But this is a rajasic planet, so we're we're just not we're not inclined. It's a rajasic planet, and this is a rajasic country. We're not inclined to do nothing. 
Swamiji talked, I mean, India is much less rajasic, at least it was, it's changing now, but Swami talked about when he was there in the late 50s, he said he would go to the Indian ashrams and they would all just do nothing. He just, he just couldn't do nothing. It was just impossible. As an American, he just couldn't do nothing. They would sort of just sit around a lot. And it was just beyond him. Because we're just, this is the way we are. And Swami, certainly, look at Ananda, look at his own life. You know, we came to a rajasic galaxy and a rajasic planet, and we're using that energy, but we're using it to move the whole thing up a lot. But we're certainly using that energy. And, you know, it's confusing about the nature of the planet because here we are, the masters have dedicated themselves to this planet, and Swamiji pointing out how often these masters have incarnated, just the ones that we know, what to speak of incarnations we might not know anything about. He's just speculated as to maybe this line of masters is in charge of this planet because they seem to have played such a repeating role on this planet. And it's and those are he Swami couldn't bring those thoughts to a clear conclusion. The whole thought that there's all of these other planets going on, with other folks having classes, and you know, I mean, like it's just you just don't know. You really don't know what to do. It's better just to just do your kriyas and. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's time to sing the school song. <laughs> I think we're just so far beyond ourselves. We just need to go somewhere else. <laughs> but yes, it's fun. It's fun because it, it helps break the commitment to the tiny self. And that's why, that's why conversations like this are beneficial because they just, you know, so what is the big deal about whatever's going on with you yesterday and today? Like, come on, get a perspective. All right. And even, it's also very important, okay, I'll come back to this for a minute. On Sunday, um, in the service, I actually said the word Israel. Just said it in the context of that. And afterwards, uh, an individual um, just cornered me and uh, talked at great length about the tragic nature of the planet at this time. You know, of all the atrocities and everybody's doing something to somebody. I mean, some of what I spoke about, and that was a, uh, a burden on my mind when I was in that country, was the incredible conflict going on all around us. And I mean, even just that whole area, which I wasn't watching, but all of the refugees and so on, what a, what a just a... So he just went on and on and on. And when I say cornered me, it was because I couldn't escape from the conversation. But the conversation was... You know, all the impossible tragedies of this world and, you know, the necess- and why aren't more people doing this or doing that and why isn't somebody doing something and why wasn't I doing something? And, I mean, it just, it just went on and on and on. And finally, literally, I put my hands over there and I said, I can't stand it, please. I just can't hear any more because... That was just, I said, and I tried to offer some of my perspective, but it was an impossible perspective for him. Absolutely impossible. It's just this world 
has to be fixed. Somebody better fix it. If they're not fixing it, it's an endless, hopeless tragedy. And there you are. What can you do? You know, and that's... Yeah, yeah. And, but this is sort of the, uh, the necessary progression. And so we're, we're on a planet now where people, everybody's going to fix it. Self-improvement, we can do it. Self-importance. You know, self-importance is the really big one. Because what characterizes our, the rajasic, the, 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 the darkening rajasic aspect of this planet is that we're so important that God is not part of the picture. And if God is not part of the picture, it's all up to us, and we're obviously making a hash of it and getting, making it worse. And you have to discover the limits, the limitation of producing happiness of a certain attitude and you usually have to be driven pretty much down to a grease spot on the rug before it'll occur to you that maybe there's another answer. It's crazy. But Master himself said, I object to Divine Mother that she makes people suffer so much. I would like her to have another system. It's just, it, all, these questions, when you really go to them, you, there's just no answers. You have to the only answer is actual experience. You have to just move your own consciousness into that place where it is all right. And you know it's all right. And you, you just, but it's something else. It's not like you ever get it all organized here. And that part of our job, our serious big-time job, is God. Just the concept that self is not the apex of the achievement. And our, you know, discipleship, Divine Mother, I mean, that image of God Master wanted us to bring in because it's compassionate. And so that because God has been there and is partly the reason the concept has been rejected is because he is kind of a nasty fellow. So we need to have it be uh, uh, some, a God that we would like to have company with, a comforter. And if you just if you reduce our our, our responsibility, self effort through kriya meditation, in other words, experience, not dogma, discipleship, which is respect and receptivity to wisdom. Just because you're a smart cookie doesn't mean you're the only and the smartest cookie, and that we're not in charge. But the one who is in charge is a compassionate mother. You know, when you just go through what's missing, there you have it, don't you? And just all this materialism and so on, because there's no inner experience. So what else are you going to do? I saw an ad, but they're, they're light. I saw an, ad, an IKEA ad that someone sent to me. IKEA has put out an ad on the internet. And, um, I mean, it's very interesting, because it's a Christmas ad for a retail store. And they, they do this whole thing with children. And they have the children, maybe some of you have seen this, they have the children write a letter to Santa Claus. It's done in Spanish, so it's slightly different. But the letter to Santa Claus and the long list of things they want, and they all just write your letter to Santa Claus. Bing, 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 bing. They write their letter to Santa Claus. They give it in and, you know, I want this, I want this, I want this. Then they have the children write a letter to their parents asking their parents, what do you want for Christmas? And the children all stop 
and they have to think about it. And at least the way they present, this is the film, but it's well done. Um, they all ask their parents for more time with their parents. More family life, more fun, more dinners, more time with their parents. Then they ask the children, if you could only send one letter, which letter would you send? And they at least put up there, all the children say, the one to my mom and dad. Then they give the letters to the parents. And, you know, and then it says, Merry Christmas, give the gifts that really count. Wow. Ikea, it's an ad. Yeah. Yeah, isn't it interesting though? I mean, there's little just bits and pieces, but otherwise it's... Well, so we've gone from annihilating the Indians to praising Ikea. What a night. Okay. (laughs) You just never know what happens when you walk in here on Tuesdays, do you? Okay. There are finally, the master continued, entire galaxies. I mean, actually, that Ikea ad is actually relevant because it just, it kind of epitomizes where we are and what's happening, isn't it? And it's part of strategically, we kind of have to know what we're up against, both from the point of view of watching our own consciousness and also being useful. Like, what what are the influences? What is realistic? What is going on? There are finally, the Master continued, entire galaxies where Satwa Guna predominates. The planets there resemble legends of the Garden of Eden. The people there can communicate easily, Uh, with beings in the astral world harmony and beauty are prevalent everywhere Um, I heard a conversation between Sant Kashavadas and Swami Kriyananda once about diet it was and they said they were talking about Satya Yuga which Satya Yuga is not exactly the same as Satvic uh, energy but they're very you can see very similar the the word is the same for example but uh, they were saying that in, in very high ages, like sattva ages, the veil between the material and the spiritual is very thin. And here it says, on these very sattvic planets, um, people there can communicate easily with beings in the astral world. I mean, just think about what that would mean. Here, we're so committed to the material. But if you, if you actually were in a, an atmosphere in which the astral world was accessible to so many people. Uh, but they said in such, a, in such an atmosphere, a little bit of physical purification actually lifts you because the material world is so much lighter that if you just uh, lighten your body a little bit, you'll get a great deal of result. In this age, where the materialistic uh, hold is so strong, you can purify your body as much as you like, and it's not enough. It just won't make enough of a difference because the materialistic vibrations are too strong. And that was where they were said, the, only, the root now is devotion, but not physical purity. And this, was, uh, this is, again, looking at things realistically, even though you can sort of hear and think and imagine that this will work. In fact, it's just a heavy materialistic age and you need to eat rice and eggs in order to <laughs> sort of get along <laughs> and be able to relate properly. Does that make sense? Okay. One should always bear in mind, however, that whatever the predominating guna 
Intelligent beings are still confined in their egos. Perfection cannot be attained except in the infinite self. For that true self, the ego is a prison. The soul's eternal longing is ever and never ceases. Oh, the soul's eternal longing is ever and never ceases to be for freedom and perfect bliss. The infinite self not only permeates all manifested existence, but lies beyond all manifestation and is the ultimate cause. Even to contemplate the cosmic vastness is expansive to the mind. Dwell always on the thought that, in your true self, you are infinite and eternal. Memorize my poem, Samadhi. Repeat it every day when you meditate. That's what we've been talking about this whole time. That's really beautiful, isn't it? I remember being with Swami once, and uh, he was talking about a, a Satya Yuga on the planet, but sat, a, a Satwik galaxy is probably a Satwa Yuna, Yuga planet. And uh, he was eating a sandwich, and he was talking about never wanting to come back to this world again. And uh, I said, well, oh no, it started like this. He was eating, and I said, uh, jokingly, because we were in some restaurant and there something really horrible was happening, I don't remember exactly. I said, sir, next time let's wait till Sat- Satya Yuga, okay? It was like, please don't do this to us again, is what I was saying. Let's wait till Satya Yuga. And Swami... Uh, with his mouth full of food he, d- he didn't even finish chewing which he almost always would I don't intend ever to come back he said <laughs> he didn't want it to stand he said even in Satya Yuga it's still the material plane that's what he said that's what he's saying it's still the material plane but then he said I love this but in Satya Yuga people like us are in charge I said so the whole planet is like one big Ananda he said yes isn't that a lovely thought you know that you have really honorable people who are dharmic in their nature who are actually running the show and uh, but he said but it's still it's still the material plane and just like this you're still imprisoned in ego and you're still not free and merely to have your day to day life be more pleasant or less of a a cacophony but I don't know are you as inspired You, you would only be allowed to be you would only be drawn to such an opportunity if your commitment to freedom was really strong so that you could maintain that effort all the way through. Fascinating, huh? Okay, memorize the poem Samadhi and repeat it every day when you meditate. Anything else before we stop? We did today, we, did, we started with 37 and we went through 39. Okay. That was an interesting adventure. Next time we go through the yugas. Yeah, it's a very long one on the yugas, which is also fascinating. Okay, thank you all.